Good morning again. If you'll open up your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10, I'm going to be reading through from verses 32 to 52. And if you're new to us or you haven't been with us for a little while, we're preaching through the gospel of Mark. And right now, today, we're coming to the end of a really large section of the gospel of Mark. The very first eight chapters up till verse 20, or rather chapter 8, verse 30, we are being introduced to the person of Jesus, seeing his strength, seeing how he is the Savior, the promised Messiah, getting a clear grasp of his identity as fully God and fully man. And right when the disciples recognize that, when Peter has his great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus' first response was to tell them of his predicted death and his suffering. And he did it again in 931, predicting his death and his suffering. And what we get to here in chapter 10 is that last, a third prediction of his death, in which Jesus is going to tell them why he's heading to Jerusalem. It's a really a kind of an amazing thing if you're reading the Gospels, just to see how much, what large percentage is focused on that last week of Jesus' life. In Mark, it's chapter 11 to 16 that focuses on the last seven days of his life. That's over 30%. Same thing's true with Matthew's gospel, chapters 21 through 28, or Luke's gospel, chapter 19 to 24. And if you look at the gospel of John, it's from chapter 12 to 21, all focused on this last week of Jesus's life. It's really important not to miss the significance of why there's such a focus on the New Testament on that last week in Jesus's life. And Jesus is going to tell us about that now. This is Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us one to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, 
the cup I, that, I will, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And he said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and follow him on the way. You know, it's rare that I grow the sermon text that I'm going to preach. Usually when I start studying a topic or start studying a text, I have to reduce the amount of verses that I have to deal with in order to be able to preach it. But this week I had to grow it. And particularly I had to add on verses 46 through 52. And it's because the same question that was asked of the disciples, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, is the same question that he asked Bartimaeus. You see, if we have one goal from looking at this text, it's to see the centrality of the cross to the Christian message and the centrality of the cross to the Christian life. If you miss how central the cross is to Christianity, you lose the message, you lose the good news, and you lose the very purpose of what it means to be a Christian, and you won't know how to live. You'll, lo you'll live for your own ambition, for your self-pleasure, to be successful in life. But what you won't live is for God, and what you won't inherit is eternal life. 
And the cross is central to the, Christ, to the Christian message, not because we've just made it up, not because Paul is imposing some message on Jesus that he didn't have or didn't believe in. The reason why we preach the cross and have a focus on the cross is because that's what Jesus himself believed. And that first point in your outline in the back of your bulletins is that the cross is central to Jesus' own mission. It's central to his self-understanding and his, his, his self-conception of what his job was. Look at him in verse 22, or 32. rather. He, they're all going to Jerusalem, but this is the first time all of his followers notice that he is way ahead of them. He's leading the way, walking ahead. And the disciples are amazed by this. And those who followed him were afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, Jesus has been very determined ever since he, the very first prediction of his death. You see this phrase reoccurring since Mark chapter 8, verse 31. You see that Jesus set out on the way. He's making a beeline somewhere that the disciples do not know exactly. But wherever he's headed, he's telling them that he's going to be killed by the Jews and that he will rise again. That he's going to be murdered in particular by the religious leaders, leadership in the establishment. And that's what is being held out before them. And he's all of a sudden started pulling ahead of them. And we know why, because by the time he gets to Bartimaeus in verse 46, he's only 12 miles away from Jerusalem. But they don't know the destination yet. But their fears are really confirmed by Jesus himself in verse 33 when he tells them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. This is where the religious establishment is. And he tells them something even more striking. Not only will he be condemned, not only will he die, not only will he be handed over to the Gentiles, but he's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be killed. You see, the disciples' fear is this misunderstanding they have about Jesus. You know, we actually have this fear pretty often. Whenever you go into a new culture, things feel pretty strange, don't they? You don't understand the customs. You think there's just all this weird behavior. But if you took time to investigate the culture, get to figure out their practices, you'd see that there's a reason and there's a logic behind all of it, even if the logic is not very logical. But there's a logic to it, that if you seek the time and the patience to understand it, the strangeness will be removed. You'll be able to explain to people why they do it. This death of Jesus that's being held before them was very strange to them. They didn't understand it. And it's not because of God's lack of clarity. Isaiah, as Robert just read, was very clear about what the mission of his Messiah was going to be. But to hold in your mind at once that the king of kings who is going to come and save his people is also going to suffer and die 
isn't something really easy to understand. It had to be something that Jesus revealed. He clarified it. He showed them how he was fulfilling all the prophecies of what came before. Jesus himself keeps telling them, though, that he's going to die. He's making this beeline to Jerusalem for this purpose. Isn't it strange to you that Jesus' job description was to die? We all just do that naturally. We do that due to our own sin, for the wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus die? Why was this his job? To answer that question is to realize the answer of what makes the cross central to Christianity and the message that we preach. And this is not just some concept in Jesus's understanding, in the sense of he doesn't know what he's getting into. Jesus is leading the troop. Jesus is voluntarily making the determined choice to die for the people of God. Yes, it is true. Christ constantly affirms the, the fact throughout the Gospels that he was sent by the Father, that the Father had given him a commandment, a work to be performed, and that the very words he spoke were not his, but the Father that sent him. This is true. But if you understand this in such a way to say that Jesus was passive in the process, you've misunderstood not only the Trinity, but the very Jesus who we have portrayed in front of us in this text. Jesus was not passive. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus tells them, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. You notice both are true there. John chapter 10, verse 18, if I said that too quickly for you, we see that Jesus is determined to lay down his own life and God had given him this commission. We know the text that for God, in reference to the Father, so get, love the world that he gave his only son. But it's important to realize that the Father loves his people, but also the Son does. That Jesus loves his people. That Jesus loves his followers. That Jesus loves you if you believe in his promises. Yes, Jesus is primarily about serving his father. Yes, his primary aim is to glorify his father. But these two things, honoring God and loving you, are not mutually exclusive. They're rather inclusive of one another. This is why Paul can say that Jesus was motivated by personal love for his people. Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice how central it is just to his thought process. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. How does Paul know Jesus gave himself for him? Because he believes in his promises. Because he trusts that all the promises of God in Christ to those who believe and rest in him alone are yes and amen. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus was the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, if we realize that Jesus's choice, that Jesus's love motivated him to die on the cross, we realize instantaneously that what's happening on the cross is not divine cosmic child abuse. The father is not so wrathful towards the people that the son has to intervene and says, I love them, Lord. I know you don't. The father loves his people and sends his son. And the father in his anger, as he pours out the wrath of God on Jesus Christ that's due to us, this is not a tragedy. The Lord Jesus Christ chose this as his mission. He was determined to accomplish it. And he was determined to accomplish it because he loved his people. When we think about the work of salvation, to say that this is divine child abuse is to break apart the Trinity and not to realize that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one God, with all one plan, with all one mission, while varying in their roles to accomplish that plan. The Son determined to die on the cross just as much as the Father determined to send him to pay for our sins. Yes, the cross is central to Jesus' thinking, central in the way he's leading his disciples, but it's also central, that next point, to the Father's plan. And this is a plan that the disciples really do not understand in the slightest. You would think that after receiving new information that he was going to be brutally murdered, mocked, spit on, and flogged, you wouldn't expect that James and John would then ask and come up to him and say, hey, we want you to do something for us. We're not going to tell you yet. First commit, will you do whatever you want for us? Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they asked to sit at his right hand and at his left in his glory. It seems like, actually, the disciples have made some progress. He's predicted his death twice now, and this is the third time. And the thing that's remained the same in every prediction is that Jesus ended every prediction with this statement. And after three days, he will rise. They did not grasp what it meant that he was going to suffer, which is going to come very evident. But they knew he was going to receive glory. They were convinced that he was the Messiah. They were convinced that he's the king of kings, that judgment day was coming when all the wicked would be punished and God would redeem his people and reestablish his kingdom as the new heavens and new earth. They're right about that. But they have no idea what they're asking of him. 
which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 38. You don't know what you are asking. You see this phrase, they are asking to be seated at his right and his left. That same phrase is repeated one more time in Mark chapter 15, verse 27. Do you know who it's in reference to? Do you know who gets the honor and the privilege who, as verse 40 says, it is for those whom it has been prepared by the Father, by the way, there. Do you know who gets that honor? Two criminals who are being crucified on his left and on his right. Repeating the same exact phrase. They have no idea what they are asking for. And he shows them this. You want my glory? It looks like crucifixion. And he explains and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? What is this language? What is this cup? Well, let's remember the closest reference, the closest point of reference we have is that prediction he just gave. That he was going to be mocked, spit upon and suffer greatly. That's the thing he expanded upon with each subsequent prediction, when going from Mark chapter 8.31, 9.31, and then 10.34. The cup is actually something he's going to fortunately refer to again. Mark 14, verse 36 Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, and he prays this prayer. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not, I, not what I will, but what you will. What's the cup that he's anticipating drinking in Gethsemane? He's already told them at the last supper, at the Lord's Supper, that he's not going to drink from the cup that he drank with, with his disciples. What cup is he going to drink? We're actually given a couple pictures of this cup in the Old Testament. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to its dregs. God has made a cup of wine that's going to cause the wicked to stagger. And he pours, shows a picture of his judgment on pouring out a glass of wine, which is being consumed by people, causing them to stumble over, fall upon themselves. And by the way here, drunkenness is judgment in this picture. It's repeated again in Isaiah 51, verse 17, when we are told, wake up, wake up yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bow, the cup of staggering. The cup that Jesus has to drink, which he asked them if they are able to drink it, is of his judgment of suffering under and having poured out upon himself the wrath of God. In the flood, 
uh, rather not the flood, the baptism of Jesus refers to the same thing. First Peter 3.21 speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ suffered once for all for sins. By the way, that cup was poured out on Jesus and it was totally drained. That's the point of to the dregs, to the very bottom with all the gross stuff is in it if you can't filter it all out. That Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath due to us as sinners. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he brings up this picture. He says, they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ark of our salvation, who if we find ourselves in him, like Noah and his family, we will be saved. But what are the waters of baptism? What are they symbolic of in 1 Peter 3.21? What happened to everyone outside of the ark? They experienced God's wrath, judgment, and in that case, utter decimation. That way we can make Baptists and Presbyterians happy because God's wrath is poured out and it's also immersing a bunch of people, huh? This is what happened to Jesus on the cross. And that's why Paul says of Christians in first, uh, rather Romans chapter 6, 2 and 3, that do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We experience a water baptism. But the baptism with which Jesus was baptized with was a pouring out of God's wrath upon him. This is what it means. This is what the central message of Christianity is. It's the father's plan and determined effort to have his son suffer the consequences due to them for their sins, his righteous wrath, and to put that on his son. And the disciples really don't understand this because they say we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Notice it's future there. He switched from the one that I have, that I drink, and you will be. Really here, if you look at the picture, while for Jesus, it particularly focuses on, in all the prophetic literature, when it talks about pouring out of God's wrath, is focusing on that prophetic moment which Jesus would die on the cross. The cup in the baptism are a general picture for suffering. God's people are promised to have suffering in this life. We just saw last week that the promises of God to all those who follow after him is that they have treasures in heaven, family, lands, that even now in this life we receive God's blessing of belonging to him in the church, but that it comes 
with persecutions. This is Mark 10, verse 30. It does come with persecutions. It does come with suffering. But this is not something that they really understand at all. You see, James and John wanted the same thing that Peter wanted. They wanted glory without a cross. Heaven and the promises thereof without any suffering in this life. Without any self-denial. But the call to follow Jesus is a call to trust him as your savior and to turn from your sin. Not that you can possibly turn enough. Not that your turning somehow merits you favor with God. But what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. This is what it means. And if we take the cross out of our message, if we don't focus on the fact that Jesus, when he died on the cross, was suffering under God's wrath, we will miss the very heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is something they do not understand. That the cross is not only central to Jesus' mission, central to the Father's plan, but it is also central to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 41 says that the other disciples were pretty angry, indignant. They're indignant for a pretty good reason. But they probably want the same thing. Mark chapter 9, right after the second prediction of his death, the disciples started arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. And he corrected him then, and he's correcting him now. But Jesus is here, or rather the reason why they're angry is if we look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, we actually see that James and John are really trying to manipulate the situation. We saw that even here in trying to get Jesus to grant them whatever they had asked before they give him the question. And the manipulation is even stronger when you realize in Matthew's account, they send their mothers to ask the question. And don't misunderstand this. This is not the type of mother that's being depicted who just sees their boy as so great, who can do nothing wrong, and they deserve the best better than all the other ones. It's not a mother who's trying to settle the argument about who the greatest is. It's the disciples' question. It's the disciples who are the ones, James and John in particular, who have posed this question, who immediately respond and answer it when it's addressed to them. They're just too much of a coward to ask him. And maybe not even cowardice, but maybe just manipulation of Jesus trying to get to be the greatest. And what does Jesus explain to them? He says to them, he calls them to himself in verse 42, and he says, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over to them. Their great ones exercise authorities over, over them. But it shall not be so among you. What does being a follower of Jesus Christ mean, and what does the cross have to do with it? It means that our ambition in life is not to promote our own glory. We can leave that to God. Our ambition in life is to serve 
others. Not like the Gentiles do, who use any power they have, any privilege they have, any prestige they've been given, like being counted among the 12 apostles. They would use that, the world uses that, to increase their own pleasure, to make servants of themselves, to serve their own needs. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not counted by how many servants you have or how many people you see following you on Twitter or any other social media account that I don't have. So I already expanded all my knowledge there. Our ambition as Christians is to be servants of other people. And the reason why is for a very specific reason. Verse 43 says, who would ever be great among you must be your servant. If greatness is not counted by how many servants you have, it's being, create, it's being counted here by Jesus when he looks at his disciples to who's the greatest. He sees who is making themselves servant of all. And whoever would be, verse 44, he's repeating the same logic here and saying, whoever would be first must be slave of all. You see, there's only one thing that's lower than a servant, and it's a slave. Someone who doesn't have the choice. Someone who has an obligation to serve out of their duty. Dear Christian, duty for us is not a bad word. It's not a dirty word. Why do we serve as Christians? It's not for any position. It's not for any ambition that we're trying to push ourselves up the ranks. We don't serve people who we think that can benefit us. We serve because as followers of Jesus Christ, this defines our mission. This defines our duty. Christ tells his disciples that this is how they are to define their ambitions in life. It's their duty. They have an obligation. It's not a choice. The cross is absolutely central to what it means to follow Jesus Christ in the sense that it defines us as must having the ambition to serve. But being a follower of Jesus Christ means something more than that. It's based on a more fundamental and foundational truth of having the ambition to be served by Jesus. That being a follower of Jesus Christ is defined by having the ambition to be served by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does Jesus serve me and you? We could think of all the different blessings God gives us and bestows upon us, but that's not what's said here. Jesus serves us by giving his life as a ransom for many. That word there, ransom, and even the, connect, the connecting conjunction there, for, both of those are picking up on the slave imagery that he just introduced. He told them that their duty as a Christian, as a follower of him, was to be a slave of all. It's their obligation. 
not their choice, which they get to choose whether or not they're going to serve other people. And he grounds that on the fact that the Son of Man serves and he has given his life as a ransom. Ransom was the word that was used of the money that you would purchase a slave with. If a slave was sitting on the blocks in Rome and you wanted to purchase him, you would pay a ransom for him. You would redeem him. All this language that we use that are so fundamental and core to what Christianity is comes from this picture that's held out before us here. The picture of the crucifixion, the picture of suffering, the picture of serving even Jesus's work in which he stoops so low as to become a slave to all our needs and use his life as the slave price to purchase our redemption. You know what this means is that what it took to pay for our sins was not God simply just being able to sweep it under the rug. God cannot lie. God is just, and he will punish every wicked deed ever committed. And God will not sweep any of your sins under the rug and just forget about them. What God did was make a way. He didn't just make a way that made salvation a possibility. He sent his son to actually accomplish the salvation of his people, to actually die the death that they deserve, to use his life. He sent his son as a ransom to redeem people, not from the devil, even though maybe secondarily from underneath the power and dominion of the devil. The thing that Jesus is talking about here from redeeming them from is from being under God's wrath. Being served by Jesus in this way is how you know you have salvation. And you should make it your ambition and you should make it your striving in all of life to be found in Christ. To see that this work that he did on the cross paid for your sins. That you're loved by him and that the father is your father. And Jesus uses a lesson to teach them. And he uses a lesson of someone who knows what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that is Bartimaeus. You see, Bartimaeus was just a blind, poor beggar who could do nothing for himself. He didn't take care of any of his needs. The only thing he did was when he heard that the Lord Jesus Christ was near, was he began to cry out to him for his mercy. He cried out to him as the son of David, the Messiah. And when people tried to shut him up, tried to silence him, he cried out all the more, have mercy on me. And Jesus chose in this beeline making to Jerusalem, stop. To listen to him and ask him the same question, which he basically told no to with the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And the man asked him to receive his sight. He asked him his, his request of asking for sight is a belief, a profound faith in what Jesus can do for him. He trusted in Jesus's ability to save him from his situation. He sought for Jesus to serve him in this way. 
And Jesus told him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and did what? Followed him on the way. The way to where? To Jerusalem. To watch his Messiah die. You know, when reading through this, this this was not my initial takeaway. That verse 45, when Jesus came, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. My initial response is to see, how am I supposed to serve? How am I supposed to do effort? This is supposed to define my life. What can I do? P.T. Forsyth, an old dead Scottish theologian, said Christ came not to be ministered to, but to minister. Our first duty, therefore, is to be ministered to by him. First faith, then works. Make it your ambition to be served by Jesus Christ. And you know what? Good works flows out of that. It flows out of that because you have been served by Jesus Christ. It flows out of that because Jesus enables his people to follow him. He helps them. He prays for them. He assists them all the way. Salvation is all by grace. And that is no more pictured for us than by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have so vividly held out before us Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, if some of us think it's still strange, think that this doesn't make sense, may they make it their ambition to understand that they may make it their ambition to be served by the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him. And Lord, those who follow him in this room today, may we be convinced that serving others is not just some possibility for us. It's not some thing that we might do if we feel like it, but not if it makes us uncomfortable. May we be like Jesus and have his mind and see other people and their needs as more worthy than our own. Not because we think it does anything to earn a place in your kingdom, but all because of what Jesus has done for us. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God's word and sing his praises.